It's noontime. Good afternoon. It's great to see you. Hey, uh, I'm not always a review guy, but I did want to kind of review where we came from last week because we're going to spend our entire year in the gospel according to John. And so remember where we were last week. We uh, determined John's purpose from John chapter 20, verse 35, and he says this, these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. So if you missed last week, or if you forgot what we've already covered, it's up here on the screen. It's John's purpose is this, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. Everybody say this word with me, believe. One more time, believe. And remember that believe for John, or belief, is not just like kind of ticking off a bunch of boxes and saying, I agree to these facts that you've presented. Belief for John is active trust, placing our active trust in Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, the promised one, the Savior of the world, the Son of God as the representation of God, and by doing so, have life in his name. In fact, 98 times in the book of John, that word believe is used, and every single time it's a verb. It's a verb. You don't have belief, you believe. It's active trust. And so what we're going to do today is start in John chapter 1, verse 1, just to kind of start to see what John is going to call us to believe, and probably more accurately, who John is going to call us to believe in. And a lot of people say, Bible scholars say, that John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and then in 14, which we'll get to 14 today as well, we'll not do 6 through 13, but 1 through 5 and 14. A lot of folks say it's a little bit of a foyer, or as we say in the U.S. of A, a foyer. It's a little bit of a foyer into, it's a foyer, isn't it? It's not foyer, it's foyer. That's better. Foyer sounds so stupid. Americans. Okay, side the point. I'm American, by the way. Okay, so it's a foyer into John's gospel. It's kind of an entryway. It's kind of a, okay, here are the main topics that John is going to cover throughout the gospel. So we're going to start in John chapter 1 today, verse 1. And so if you have your Bibles, I would love for you to open them up. You can open up your iPhone. Make sure it's off, please. I'll check mine as well. I'm off, okay? Make sure your iPhone's off if you're using it. Your iPad. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible in the seat back in front of you. You can use that one. You might have to reach down the row a little bit. You can share it with a neighbor. But since we're spending our entire year in the Gospel of John, I would love for you to have the text in front of you each and every week. If you don't have a Bible, we will give one to you because we want you to have a copy of the Scripture. But all of us together, John chapter 1, verse 1, and let's see what John has to say. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to 14. And the word, what we've been talking about, became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. I've heard some folks say and some Bible scholars that I read this week, they wrote that you could spend an entire semester in a seminary class just on these verses and still not get anywhere close. 
just scratch the surface. There is so much going on there. So what I'm going to do in the next 35 minutes here is my best to help us start to get a framework for what John is going to unpack in his gospel. Let's pray together. God, we do invite you to speak to us. Now that we've read your word as we talk about it together and what it means for our lives and what you're trying to communicate to us, would you shine your light just as we read that the word was the light of men and the darkness has not overcome it. In, this, in these moments, would you call attention to yourself? Would you shine a light on yourself and help us to see you more clearly this morning? In Christ's name, the people of God together said... Amen. Well, as I thought about how to introduce this sermon about the incarnation, about God becoming flesh, I, I, um, I started thinking about a situation that happened to me a couple of years ago, and it might seem like an irrelevant story to start, but, but it will get relevant, I promise. Okay, so here's the story. Uh, a couple of buddies and I went to Detroit a few years ago to see uh, some sporting events. That's the only good reason to be in Detroit, by the way, is to see professional sporting events. That's just my opinion. And Graham, who was playing acoustic guitar this morning, me and a couple other guys, we went to Detroit to see the Red Wings and see uh, the Lions play, and it was great. And the first night we were there, it was a Wednesday night. And we got in really late to this hotel because we drove after work. We got in late and all the restaurants were closed down. And Detroit's not the kind of place where you just want to walk around looking for a restaurant because that doesn't turn, on, turn out very well. So we went to this like lounge, waiting room, kind of bar area in the hotel. And we went up to the bartender and asked, are you guys still serving food? And so we step up to the bar, the three of us, and we said, hey, bartender, um, we didn't call him bartender, we called him slick or chief or something, right? Hey, chief, are you guys still serving food? And just as we asked this question, a guy at the bar turned around, and, and I'll just tell you a little bit about this man. God loves him, number one. Number two, he probably should have stopped a couple of cocktails ago, you know what I mean? Like that kind of guy, and so we knew where this conversation, you may have had a conversation with a guy like this, you may have actually been a guy like this at some point, but anyway, we start to have a conversation with this guy, and he says, first thing out of his mouth is, where are you guys from? And we're like, oh, we just drove in from Toronto. And he's like, Canada? I'm like, nope. Toronto, South Dakota. But yes, Toronto, Canada. Like Toronto, Toronto, like right up the road, Toronto, Canada. And I don't know about you, but when I tell people, and I'm American, just, again, I said that before, but I'm going to make fun of Americans mercilessly for the next couple of minutes here. But understand that I have some empathy, some sympathy, because I've been this guy before and, and said the kind of stuff that he said to me. And I don't know about you, but when you tell people you're from Canada or if you're from somewhere else and you live in Canada, here are the three things that every one of these conversations, here's the three things they always say. The, and the first thing out of this guy's mouth, Canada? And we're like, yeah, we're from Canada. He goes, A? A, 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 like, like not connected to a sentence, not inviting a response, just said A over and over and kept doing this with his elbow. Like, just so you know, I know Canadian nomenclature. A, A, good, right, fantastic. Second thing out of his mouth was, parlez-vous francais? I'm like, dude, you have no idea where we're from. Like, it would be far more likely if we spoke Mandarin, you know, considering the neighborhood that we live in, okay? We don't parlez-vous anything. And then the third thing, again, I don't know if it, if it, like, you tell people I'm from Toronto, I'm from Canada, and they say, you know Doug from Vancouver? 
And, the, and I used to be the guy that was like, you're a moron, right? You don't understand geography. Like Toronto and Vancouver are not anywhere close. Like Canada's like kind of a big country. And I, I used to be that guy. And then I was the guy who was like, you, like get angry. I was like, you are, you are just a rare or whatever. Now here's what I do, and I love it. It's awesome. I go, totally know Doug from Vancouver. How's his family? Like, they're like, you know Doug from Vancouver? Yep, absolutely. Just play right along. And they think that I know Doug from Vancouver. Now, interestingly enough, in the midst of this conversation, this guy taught me something about the incarnation. Accidentally, but he still taught me something about the incarnation. Because subsequently, he launched into a story about a hockey player named Steve Eiserman. If you've heard of Steve Eiserman, he's widely considered one of the greatest hockey players of all time. And he played in Detroit, where this guy was from. So he's telling me this story about growing up in Detroit, and he ran into Steve Eiserman while Eiserman was playing for the Red Wings. Now he's like the general manager in Tampa Bay, I think, right? But anyway, he's playing for the Red Wings at the time, and he runs into Steve Eiserman at the grocery store or like the, a breakfast place or something, and Steve Eiserman was nice enough to give him tickets to the game that night. The guy was like, it was awesome. I had no idea. I, hadn't, you know, no, I knew who Steve Eiserman was, but we weren't friends. I had no relationship with him. Just ran into him, and he was very, very nice to me. And you could tell that as this guy told the story, the story was actually being developed as he told it. You ever been in those situations where you're like, you're not recalling this. You're just kind of writing this as you go here. So he tells us that that night he gets to the game, Joe Louis Arena, where the Red Wings play. And as he's walking in the door, Steve Eiserman is walking out. So I'm, I'm thinking already, I know this is not true because players and the general public typically don't use the same entrance and exit, right? But apparently in this guy's story, they did. The second thing he tells me is that Steve Eiserman is surrounded by photographers. He actually called them paparazzi. I'm like, dude, Eiserman's not surrounded by, like he's not a Kardashian, right? This is not what this is. But he talks about all these cameras and video and media of all surrounding Steve Eiserman. And as he walks out, Steve Eiserman locks eyes with this guy that's telling us his story. And Steve Eiserman goes like this, everybody stop. And the room just fell silent. Nobody moved. I'm, t I'm telling you, this is how he's telling me this story, right? And we're in it now. We're emotionally invested. Like, we're with him, right? He's like, everybody stopped. And Steve Eiserman looked at me in the eye and he said, you, I'm glad you made it tonight. <laughs> and I thought, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. This is not a true story. This is silly. But the reason that it was so compelling to my intoxicated friend, so compelling that he needed to tell us the story over and over, and never pronounce Steve Eiserman's name the same way twice. You know, you know Stevie Yeiserman? Steve Yeiserman? Steven Yeiserman? I'm like, just consistency is all I'm looking for. But the reason it was so compelling for him is because for him, Steve Eiserman was like kind of in a different social status, right? Or a different economic status. He, he, was, he was better. Like he was better. And so for a guy like that to stoop and look him in the eye, to kind of descend to his level and develop a relationship to be kind to him, it was kind of an unbelievable thing. It was like it moved him. It compelled him. And whether or not the details of the story were true, I'm sure that it was partly true that Steve Eisenman was really nice to this guy. And it really moved him. It made him feel really valued.
And we love stories like this. As a matter of fact, they're on the news all the time. You hear about like Taylor Swift getting an invite to like a 14-year-old girl's birthday party just because, you know, hey, let's invite Taylor Swift. It'll be great. And then like Taylor Swift shows up, right? And everybody just loses it. Or like somebody invites Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake's a musician, by the way. They invite him to the wedding and he shows up at the wedding and everybody just loses it because we see people in a different social status, economic status, people are really good at their job or whatever is different from us. And so for them to show up and have relationship with us really moves us. It's compelling. And the interesting thing is that the greater the chasm, the greater the perceived chasm between us and somebody else, the more compelling it is or even unbelievable it is when they descend and stoop to our level and, and, and interact with us. We love stories like this. See, this is why C.S. Lewis wrote this about the incarnation. He says that the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. This is God becoming man. God, the divine, putting on flesh. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. It was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about. He, that's God, comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down further still to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with him. See, C.S. Lewis and John are compelled by the very same things that you and I are compelled by. But they both understand that the chasm between God and us was infinitely and exponentially greater than the chasm between you and some athlete and you and some uh, rich guy down the road, you or me and some celebrity the chasm was just far greater, and so they were so moved by God stooping, becoming flesh, and interacting with you and me. See, this is what John chapter 1, 1 through 5 and verse 14 is all about. It's about God becoming flesh. So I have two goals here this morning. The first is this. I would like for us to understand the incarnation intellectually. I would like for us to understand what the Bible teaches about God becoming flesh, about who Jesus was, about his identity. And listen really closely now because this is critical. Jesus' identity is more significant than his activity. Now, I want to say that a couple of different ways so that we understand. Jesus does miracles. He engages in activity, and those are important. But they're important insofar as that they vindicate or prove to us who he really is. This is why it's, it's interesting because if you ask like cults and people who are like way off on the th some like weird theological tangent, if you ask them, what did Jesus do? A lot of them say the same thing. They all agree as to what Jesus did. But if you ask them, who is Jesus? There's a lot of disparity there. There's differences there. It's critical that we understand what the Bible says about the identity of Jesus. Who is he? And that's what John is going to declare from John chapter 1, right from the jump, to make sure that we know who Jesus is. So I want us to understand it intellectually, but I also want it to take root in our heart. Just like the, even the graphic we saw before I preached, that that seed of belief would be planted in our hearts and lives, and then it would grow and flourish and bear fruit. That we would be moved once again by that great chasm that God bridged in order to stoop and look us in the eye and have a relationship with us. As the hymn writer once said, I want us to ponder anew 
what the Almighty can do, or, or in this case, has done. And we're going to do it verse by verse in John chapter 1. So, again, if you have your Bible, look down. If not, look up here on the screen. John writes this. In the beginning was the Word. In the beginning was the Word. John's about to talk a lot about the Word in verses 1 through 5 and then into 14. So we need to understand what John means by the Word. Remember, John is an older man now. He's likely in his 80s, even maybe into his 90s. He's a Jewish man, and so his understanding of the Word would have an Old Testament framework around it. That's how he understood the Word and, more specifically, the Word of God. So here's our question. What does the Old Testament say about the Word of God. How would John have understood the word? Well, John would have known this, that the word represents or is God's power. God's power. Remember in Genesis chapter 1 that when God begins to create, he creates humans and plants and animals and fish and birds and all that stuff. He doesn't create by gesturing. He creates by speaking. It's his very words that speak things into existence by the very word of his power. In fact, uh, Psalm 103, I believe, actually reads this way. Hang on one second. I'll just make sure. Psalm 33. Sorry. Psalm 33 verse 6 says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the word of the Lord. The heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. See, the word of God for John is power. The word of God is also God's revelation. It's God's revelation. If you read the Old Testament, these prophets that are kind of megaphones for God, they're the voice of God to the people, and they've recorded in the Old Testament a lot of what they've had to say to God's people. It says, the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord came to Hosea, who we'll talk about here in a minute. The word of the Lord, or thus says the Lord, or this is the word of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord, or word of God, represented God's self-revelation, his self-disclosure. It's like, I want you to know me. I want you to know my character. I wanted you to know what makes my heart beat. This is the word of the Lord, his revelation. And the word of the Lord is also God's deliverance for his people, his redemptive plan for his people. When he rescued them, Psalm 107, 20 reads this way. He sent out his word, right? He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from destruction, so when John says, in the beginning was the word, this is what he's talking about. He's talking about God's power, his, God's revelation, and God's deliverance. The word, in the beginning, power, revelation, and deliverance. And John not only says the word, he says the word was there in the beginning. In the beginning. Bible people, you know that this is how the Bible starts. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the deep. John is using this language in the beginning very specifically. It's strategic here. This is not accidental. He wants us to frame the existence of the Word within God's eternal nature. So what he's telling us is the Word is eternal. The Word is eternal. This power, this revelation, this redemption of God, this is eternal. And when we think of the Word being eternal... I want us to think in two kind of spaces and aspects of the eternity of God's word. The first is time, and the second is space. 
And we, again, cannot plumb the depths of what it means that the word is eternal. But just so we get a little bit of a picture, let's do it this way. Because a a friend of mine, uh, one of our elders, actually a guy named Tim, gave me a great illustration this week of what it means that God exists outside of time. He's eternal. He's apart from time. He's not bound by time is what we mean when we say the word is eternal in time. So picture this, if all of us, right after this service, gathered all up and we got on a bus together, like it would be a really big bus, but let's get on a bus together, and we're all going to go downtown and have lunch. Well, the journey would take us from here at Bayview and Steeles, and it would take us east over to the 404, if that's what we wanted to get fast down the freeway or whatever. We took the 404, and we'd go by Finch, and we'd go by other streets that are downtown. I live north, okay? And then we would get down to the gardener. We would take the gardener over. And that journey, in that journey, we could only be at one place at one time. We would be confined to Baby and Steels or confined to the 404 and Steels or confined at the gardener. We'd only be in one space at one time. But, but picture this. Instead of getting a, in a bus, what if we all got in a helicopter? Like a really big helicopter, again, being on a helicopter with me, by the way, if you ever have the opportunity, don't. I get air sick. It just goes really bad really quickly. But let's say we got on a helicopter. So instead of being confined to one space at a time, what we would be able to do is see the entire city in a single glance, wouldn't we? Instead of being conf- con- confined and, and, and have blinders on and only be able to see one thing at one time, we would be outside of the city, above the city, and we could see all of it in a single glance. See, this is what it means that God is outside of time. He's eternal. He sees past, present, and future in a single glance. He's not bound by it. In fact, he's the creator of it. The word is also eternal in terms of space. The word's eternal in terms of space. Before there was anything, there was the Word. There was the Word. Picture this. Um, In your mind's eye, like delete your house, let's say. Or if you live in a condo, an apartment, a townhouse, whatever it is, wherever you're living, just delete that. Now in your mind's eye, like delete your neighbor's houses. Some of you are thinking, can we actually do that? Because I would really love, I hate my neighbors. No, don't do that. But in your mind's eye, delete your neighbors. Delete your community, your neighborhood. Delete this physical church, the bricks and mortar here. Delete Lake Ontario, in your mind's eye. Delete cottage country. Delete the whole country. Delete that country to the south of us. Delete that country to the south of us. Delete that country to the south of us. That's me, Americans. Delete it. Delete the world. Delete the moon, stars. Delete the sun. See, the Bible says this. In the beginning was the word. Or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void. Before there was even a thing called space. Before there was even a grid or a framework to hold the planets in place. There was the Word. John wants us to know that the Word is eternal. Let's keep reading. In the beginning, there was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. (laughs) Word was with God, and the Word was God. John wants us to know two things here, that the Word is God, and the Word is distinct from God. 
The Word is God. He says the Word was God. In fact, more literally translated, John chapter 1, verse 1 reads this way. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and God was the Word. Those words are switched in the original Greek. He wants us to know that the Word was God. The Word is God. But he also wants us to know that the Word was with God. The Word is distinct from God. You cannot be with someone or something unless you're distinct from that someone and something. Like, you don't say, I'm with my by myself. That's not, that's not how that works. You have to be distinct from someone or something else in order to be with. Now, some of you might look up here and go, you know, this is a contradiction in terms. It's a, that's, that doesn't work. That's a contradiction. Philosophically speaking, psychologically speaking, in terms of argument and science, this is actually not a contradiction. It's what's called a paradox. See, a contradiction is two antithetical statements that cannot exist at the same time. That are two opposite statements that are in conflict with one another. So if I was to say, that chair is red, that chair is not red, that's a contradiction. If I was to say, this TV is here, this TV is not here. They can't exist at the very same time. That's a contradiction in terms. But this is what's called a paradox. It's a seemingly contradictory statement or implausible or impossible statement that, after further review, actually turns out to be tenable. It's a paradox. It's not a contradiction. And believe it or not, in very high levels of math, which I barely even got past like long division, okay, but people that were much higher than me, right, lots of PhDs and letters after their names, they sit in ivory towers, and when they're trying to solve very complicated mathematical problems and the theory of relativity and all that stuff, like, like the guys on the Big Bang do, you know, the, you know, the Big Bang show, that's about where I'm at in terms of my maturity level. I watch sitcoms. Okay, but they, they, they play scientists. So the scientists, they're figuring this stuff out. Mathematicians, when, when it's a very complicated math problem, what they'll do is actually introduce a paradox, and the paradox will actually help them to solve a very challenging mathematical problem. See, this is not a contradiction. It's a paradox. The Bible teaches very, very clearly that in the beginning, the Word was God, but the Word was also distinct from God. And for those who say, you know what, I, I actually can't believe that. That's, that's a contradiction. Some of them have actually shifted the Bible around. Did you know that? So you might read a Bible translation that says this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. That's not what the Scripture says. We cannot, and we refuse to, rip God down from his throne and put him to test over our scrutiny. Because I can't understand it, it must not be so. It's pretty arrogant, don't you think? Yeah, pretty arrogant. So we humble ourselves before a God, even though they're not contradictory, it's a paradox, and we say, yes, Lord, the word was God, is God, and the word is distinct from God. Let's keep reading. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, if I were to attach a pronoun to the word word, what pronoun would I choose? It. It. The word is an it, not a he or a she, but John chooses the word he was in the beginning with God. So the word is personal now. The word is personal. The word is not just this nebulous thing out there. The word is not an it. The word is personal. The word is something that we can interact with. The word is something that we can engage with. More specifically, the word is someone. Put that slide up there if you would, that the word is personal. The word is personal. We interact with the word. We can know the word. The word became flesh is what John is going to tell us. Keep reading. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So the 
eternal word, the powerful word, distinct from God, with God, the personal word. John says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. It's kind of an awkwardly phrased little sentence, isn't it? Verse 3. Okay, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Could you imagine talking to your friends and family at a dinner table like that? It's a little weird, right? The reason that it's awkwardly phrased is because in the original language, this is what commentators or Bible scholars call rhythmic prose or poetry. Uh, specifically in, in ancient Greek and ancient Hebrew poetry, they did what's called this chiastic structure. Now, I explained it to the first service this morning, and they got, they like, totally glazed over and got really bored, and so I'm not going to explain it to you. Suffice it to say that in the original language here, this verse 3 is poetic. John is using really unique and really beautiful language, almost poetic language, to explain to us that in the beginning, that eternal word was part of God's creative process, one and the same with God, distinct from God, but the word is creator. The word is Creator. In fact, Colossians 1 says this, it says this, that he, that's God or Jesus, spoiler alert, the word is Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Say it again. For by him all things were created. In heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, and listen close to this because I love this, and for him. Oh, that's that's cool. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hebrews 1 talks about the word, talks about Jesus, talks about God upholding all things by the power of his word. See, the word is creator. Keep reading verse 4. says that in him, that's the word now, in him was life. In him was life. Now John's going to unpack this uh, concept of life throughout the whole gospel. And so we're not going to spend a ton of time on it this morning because we'll have time to do it throughout the course of the year as we study the gospel of John. But suffice it to say this morning that John is saying to us that the word is life. The word is not the giver of life. The word does not offer life, although the word is the giver of life and does offer life. But the word is the very essence of life. The word is life. Not just physical life, not just spiritual life, not just emotional life, but all of life. This is the word. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, the Bible says. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So not only is the word eternal and the word is personal, the word is God, the word is distinct from God, the word is the creator of all things, the word is life, but the word is also light. The word is light. So for John, there's going to be this dualistic nature of light and dark throughout the course of his gospel. And light represents what is moral, what is right, what is good. Darkness represents what is immoral, what is not right, what is not good. But there's also, in addition to this dualistic nature in terms of morality and immorality, righteousness and unrighteousness, there's also this thing that John does in his gospel. And he talks about the nature of light and how it impacts the world around us. So think of it this way. Did you know that that darkness is not actually a thing? Did you know that? 
Darkness is just the absence of light. Like, light is a thing. Light is a wave. Light is a particle. I don't know how it does at the same time. Ask the math people, right? Ask the same math people from the Big Bang Theory that I was just talking about. But light is a thing. Darkness is simply the absence of light. So what John is saying here is that we are introducing God into a world that is devoid of God. Where there was no God, where there was no activity of God, metaphorically speaking now, because God's active in everything, but, but we, are, we are bringing light in. The word is light. And light's great, right? Because it helps us see things, and it helps us do things, and it reveals things to us. But you know that light doesn't always reveal what we want to see, right? Like, light can get on our nerves sometimes. Light, light can kind of reveal things about ourselves that we don't like. Think about when you first get up in the morning, and it's dark, and you go to the bathroom, and you turn the light on, and then you immediately turn the light off, because you don't want to see what the light just revealed, right? Or at nighttime, like, I sleep really, really well. I'm a good sleeper. Like, you could release a snarling, hissing wolverine in my bed, and I, like, I'm just out all night, but Amy's a bad sleeper, so we close our bathroom door every night because the moon shines through our bathroom window and into our bedroom, and it will wake Amy up in the middle of the night. See, the light can wake us up to things, maybe even sometimes when we don't want to be woken up to things. See, spiritually speaking, the word is the same way. The word reveals and illumines and and helps us to interact and engage and helps us to see spiritual things. But sometimes, sometimes the light helps us to see things that we weren't really keen on seeing. Sometimes the light wakes us up, even when we weren't excited about being woken up. So here's, here's the thing. Now listen really closely. John has worked really hard to establish the power and beauty and majesty and authority, the eternal nature of the word, the creative power of the word, the the message of God in the word. And check this out. Again, we know that the word is Jesus because we enter into John's gospel a little bit like the omniscient narrator. You know, we kind of know what's happening and we know how it's going to unfold. But listen closely now. John does not mention Jesus' name until verse 17. He hadn't even talked about Jesus yet. All he's done is talk about the word, the divine word. So he set up for us this chasm, this canyon. Like we think, how could a celebrity stoop? How could an athlete stoop? And how valuable that must make us feel or does make us feel when we do how we're compelled by those stories. See, John has established this chasm that is not bridgeable. Like, like, we can't even see the other side of the canyon between us and the word. But look what he says in verse 14. And this, this is where the weight of the incarnation should set on our shoulders, cause us to take a little bit of a step back and begin to kneel and worship. Look what John says. He says, and the word, go back one, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The power, the creativity, beauty, the majesty, the holiness, the theologians in the room, the aseity, the impassibility, the omniscience, the omnipresence, the omnipotence of God, all of those things about God dwelling in flesh. You think it's impressive that a hockey player or an athlete or 
as if hockey players and athletes are different, but that's beside the point. An athlete or a, a rich person or royalty stoops. You see those pictures of, you know, the queen or Prince Harry or whatever, and they're kneeling down to, like, talk to a child or something. Like, oh, isn't that great? See, this is God taking on flesh and kneeling down so he could look you and I in the eye. Now, that's pretty cool. So if you're jotting notes down, I'd love for you to jot this down because this is really our bottom line truth this morning. We're going to unpack it piece by piece here is that the word is Jesus. Jesus is the word. He's God's message to you and God's mission for you. It's God's message to you and his mission for you. Jesus is the word. He is the word take on flesh dwelling among us. And he is God's message to you and his mission for you. So let's unpack it one piece at a time. Jesus is God's message to you. His life, his activity, his identity, uh, the words that he speaks, the way he treats people is his message to you and to the world. This is exactly, precisely what God wanted to communicate to you. Is Jesus the incarnate word? Now, here's the thing. When it comes to words and communication, we can get things mixed up sometimes. And really small errors, really seemingly minor things, can make a really big difference in the nature of our communication with one another. You ever had that happen to you, like an autocorrect on a text to your spouse? You're like, wow, I just called my spouse something really naughty. I got a, you know, sorry, babe, it was autocorrect. I always blame autocorrect, but that's beside the point. You know, the, when our words get mixed up, even letters get mixed up, things can get really hairy really quickly. Uh, and my wife is, is uh, pretty notorious for mixing up song lyrics. I love that about my wife because she sings like, she sings so beautifully and so confidently and just so wrong sometimes. Like just, that is, that is not what they're saying, love. So I, I've seen her mix up Katy Perry. I've seen her mix up Christina Aguilera. We listen to pagan music in my house. Don't judge me. But like we, I've seen her mix up all this stuff. And, and one of my favorite ones was several years ago, uh, we were at a concert, a guy named Amos Lee. We were at his concert out in San Diego with some friends. And we were so excited to be there. And, and Amos Lee, to conclude the concert, brought the opening band back out. And they concluded by covering a Queen song. Now, the song that they covered is not exactly church appropriate to share. And so I'm going to try to share it in a way that's kind of sanitized so, you know, you don't get angry at the pastor. It, it was the Queen song that's about a particular kind of woman figured in, of, with a particular kind of figure that just so happens to make the rockin' world go round. Have you heard this song before? Okay, if you haven't, stick with me here and you'll figure it out here in a minute. So I'm with my wife at this concert and she is singing at the top of her lungs, flat bottom girls, you make the rocking world go round. And I'm going, okay. Like how do I break this to my wife that what you're celebrating here with all the rest of these degenerates and pagans isn't exactly what you think you're celebrating, right? And I had to lean over to her and say, babe, and I whispered into her ear, those aren't the lyrics. And she said, well, what, what are they saying? And I said, remove the L. It's not flat-bottomed girls make the rockin' world go round. It's a different kind of gal. And you could see light bulbs go on in Amy's head 
And immediately she's like, this is offensive and it's wrong and we are leaving. I'm like, two seconds ago, you were singing this thing, flat bottom, you know, like this is it. Some of you might be thinking, how in the world is he going to turn this corner? This is, this is the worst story I've ever heard in church. How does this have anything to do with the incarnate word of God? So stick with me here. Jesus is God's precise message to you. God's precise message to you. When we say that Jesus lived a perfect life, yes, we mean he was moral. Yes, we mean he fulfilled the law, but he is the perfect message of God to you. There is nothing about the life and ministry and interaction and relationships of Jesus that does not reveal to you exactly the heart of God. You want to know what God loves? Look at Jesus. You, don't know, you want to know what makes God mad? Look at Jesus. You, you want to know what he thinks about prostitutes and sinners? You look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks about people that think they're religious? You look at Jesus. That's God's precise message to you. Not anything in the life of Jesus, will distract us from the heart of God. In fact, it's exactly what God wanted to say to you. The Word become flesh. And, and, Jesus is God's mission for you. He's the Word. He's God's, not just His message to you, but His mission for you. Think about this. The Word, powerful, eternal, creative, from the very beginning of time, took on flesh. Why? Because God was bored. No, to come get you, to go on mission for you. And, and when we know the identity of Jesus, when we know that this is God took on flesh, it changes the way we think about ourselves, at least it should. All those little lies you tell yourself about I'm not worth it and nobody likes me and I should go eat a worm, you know what God says to you? Hey, why don't you look at Jesus? Because I, I, I put on flesh for you. I did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made myself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so I could go after you, on mission for you, gave up everything for you. It should change the way we think about our own identity if we understand the identity of Jesus. There's a story of a man who lived in a really prosperous city, in a really prosperous country during a very prosperous time in, in history. He was listened to by his community and his city and his country. He had all the resources that he needed. I mean, he was, he was pretty well known. And he married a prostitute. And, and not like prostitute like Richard Gere married Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman and she had a nice dress and it all turns out really well after an hour and 45 minutes. Not that kind of prostitute, like a real prostitute. Like, selling my body, rebelling against her husband, even though he cared for her, even though he loved her with an everlasting love, even though he gave up everything for her, even though he could have provided for her, she went and sought affection, whatever, from other lovers and sold herself to them. So much so that she actually had two children with other men that weren't him. And finally, after the second one was born, she just said, peace, that's it, I'm out of here. Like, I don't want any part of you anymore. And she went full bore, full tilt into a life of prostitution. And his friends came to him and said, finally, man, you're free of this thing. Like, she's left you, she's gone. Like, she's a prostitute anyway. Like, now that you, now you can find another spouse, you can find another wife and do something different here and like live a really normal life and have somebody who loves you. And he said, no, 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 I love her too much. 
I love her too much. I just can't let her go. And he exhausted his resources, everything he had to go after her. And he finally found her, and she was on a slave block, chained, still selling her body. And he purchased her, and he loved her. He redeemed her. He embraced her and brought her back home. Why? Because he loved her. It's not fiction. It's not the latest rom-com. <laughs> it's the story of Hosea, God's prophet in the 8th century before Christ even came around. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute named Gomer. Again, if you're looking for a biblical name for a little girl, that's probably not a good one, but that's what his wife's name was. And he went after her and exhausted all his resources. Again, because God was bored? No. Because he wanted us to have a picture of how much he loves you and me. He wanted us to know that when he sent his son, exhausted his resources, his inexhaustible resources, on you and on me, even when we ran, he pursued. Even when he could provide for us and we went somewhere else, even when we worshiped other gods, even when we kind of gave God the proverbial hand to the face and slap in the face and did something else, God came after us one after another on mission. Let Jesus, the incarnate word of God, stand in front of you this morning and say, God is on mission for you, relentless mission, and nothing will stop him. Here's what John wants us to know this morning, that Jesus is God's precise message for us. The word, the incarnate word is our, God's precise message to us and his mission for us. Let's pray. God, we love you and we praise you. We are grateful that you've been with us here this morning in our worship and through your word. Our hearts now respond in song as we declare, not that we can check off a bunch of facts and agree, but God, so that we can say we place our active trust in you, Jesus, our active trust in you, Father, our active trust in this incarnate word. Thank you for your message to us. Thank you that you came after us. Thank you that you are God on mission to redeem and rescue each one of us and indeed your whole creation, and you prove that word became flesh and dwelt among us. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, let's close as we declare that we believe in God. Stand with me as we sing.